0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on where you're watching and when. Welcome to White Line Fever Live. i really got to do these rugby league podcasts every week, but life gets in the way and they're a bit irregular, which uh, frustrates me. Well, it looks like we might have lost our guest, which isn't good. I'm hoping he calls back in. But um, our guest, I'll tell you a little bit about him. His name is uh, Tom Mather. He's an uh, English fellow living in, uh, actually, he just told me, just south of uh, Wollongong. And um, he's a very prolific author. Um, he actually did John Dorrehy's biography, which uh, John Dory as you might know, if you follow anything I do, is one of my favourite players. Uh, and um, but he and he's, I mean, he must have done 10 books if you look on Amazon, Tom Mather. And his most uh, recent uh, book is, um, it's called Rugby League is Born. And in the book, he... Um, well, the, the blurb, I haven't read it yet. Um, the blurb suggests that um, the, the, the legend or the, the, the myth that we all accept uh, about uh, the birth of Rugby League, that it was about uh, broken time, about players uh, are not getting time off work to go to games and uh, players um, not, getting, um, not being able to afford to play unless they were paid for the time they missed work that this is not necessarily the case, that this isn't really the the reason Rugby League was born and that it was a far more complex story. Welcome back, Tom.
1: Nice to be with you, Steve.
0: Yes, yes. Great, great, great to have you back. We lost you for a little bit there. Um, Before we talk about your new book, which sounds fascinating, uh, Rugby League is Born, can you set up uh, for the viewers and listeners a bit about how you came to write John Dorrehy's biography and how you came to... um, Write all these books. How many books have you published
1: now? Oh, that's a difficult one. I'm pushing up towards 30. Wow. Wow.
0: Um,
1: But with regard to John, John Dorothy was when John was the coach at Wigan. My son, Barry John Mather, was just breaking into the first team. And it was John uh, who actually converted him from a second row forward to a to a centre, and his his career took off from there. And it was John that brought him over to Perth Western Reds when he was assistant coach there. So I've been coming to Australia from around about nineteen ninety four, really. And during that time, I used to come over and we'd we'd stay with John. And I thought, you know, this is a guy who's got a fascinating story and. So he very kindly agreed to let me have a look at all the scrapbooks that his mum had kept. And I was able to piece together his, what I think was a wonderful career for an Australian who did it in, in, in Australia, but he did it. He did massive things in England, very badly treated by Wigan, you know, when he he did the double and got sacked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, John Dory is my favourite player as a kid. I went to the Steelers' first training session and got got his autograph uh, at the end in 981. so um, a very special player uh, to me. And and but you've written a lot of rugby league history books too about the Roke's Drift Test and um, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, I I wrote a book way back in '93 with with Mike Layden, which was the first book I wrote, which was called The Rugby League Myth, and it was that book that. Was instrumental in this latest book because I got an itch that I couldn't scratch, and the itch was that things were not as the uh, the officials at the rugby league would have us believe with regard to how the game was was formed, and other things took over, and I came. I eventually came out living here, and I've been writing books. I wrote a series of books about the. The tours done to Australia by the by the England rugby league between the walls. And it's it's just sort of escalated from there, really. I, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just running out of ideas of what to write about next, basically.
0: <laughs> well, well, we don't want you to give away the sort of uh, punchline punchline of, of your latest book, Rugby League is born, but can you tell us a bit about the premise of it and 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 how that what we've all been taught—that rugby league um, was a kind of working class revolution against um, Twickenham, who wouldn't let players be reimbursed for time off through injury or travelling to matches. How that, that perhaps wasn't necessarily the case.
1: It, it wasn't really the case at all. Um, it's a lot more complex and complicated than that. And I know Professor Tony Collins, who I know well, Tony Collins wrote for university when he was doing his, his PhD. And we got this psychological sociological talk about how the um, poor working class North was, it was inevitable that broken town payments would lead to the breakaway. It was far more complicated than that. The problem started way back in, that, in, in 1892, because in 1892, the senior clubs in Lancashire, but particularly in Yorkshire, were facing massive problems, and those problems were coming on two fronts. Firstly, there was the third styles. If the Yorkshire clubs were playing in the Yorkshire Cup tie, or they were playing in a local derby, yeah, they got a massive crowd. But the mundane week-to-week bread and butter games were being viewed as meaningless, and they were staying away in ever-increasing numbers, and that spelled financial disaster for the clubs. But the other problem came from the rival code of soccer. By the end of the 1891-92 season, the Football League was successfully running two divisions, 16 clubs in each division, year on year. So it was always something had to be done. And in 1892, 10 of the senior clubs in Yorkshire met in secret and decided they were going to form themselves into an alliance. That in itself wouldn't have caused a problem for the authorities. What did cause the problem was the fact that they wanted to form an alliance league, which they wanted to run and they wanted to control. The Yorkshire authorities, and for that matter, Twickenham and the English Rugby Union, were never going to allow that to happen. And so the was refused by the authorities. And that led to conflicts. Now in Lancashire, the problem didn't arise because the Lancashire authorities were quite happy to have a have league rugby, and they quite happily set up a first, second, and third division. The difference was the Lancashire authorities would control all three divisions. In Yorkshire, the, the, the ten clubs, they were quite adamant they wanted to control it. And Matters escalated, and there were interminable, and the clubs and the authorities, and in the end, in July of 1892, the ten senior clubs in Yorkshire, resigned, from the Yorkshire County Rugby Union, and that brought the authorities to the table, and eventually what what transpired was an alliance league, which was first of all, was going to be controlled by a subcommittee of the Yorkshire Rugby Union, but that subcommittee was to be made up of one member from each of the 10 senior clubs in membership. And that, that was how they got, in brackets, control of the game. The problem was that when it came to the bylaws, bylaw 28 was to cause all sorts of problems because it stated that the bottom two clubs would have to retire from the league, but they would be eligible for re-election. And of course, when the first season was played and the bottom two clubs retired, they were re-elected by the the, ten, the, the other eight senior clubs. and. that caused an outcry in Yorkshire and that anger that was building up and building up carried on way way through to 1895. Now in, in Lancashire the problem was on a, it was still promotion and relegation but in in Lancashire the problem was professionalism. Clubs realised in Lancashire they could get to the very top, very top of the game by promotion and so they began to poach players from other clubs. And in that first season of 1892-93, many, many claims of professionalism, but clubs, not only were they paying broken time, and let's not make any bones about it here Steve, most of the country was playing broken time at that time, not just the, the, the Lancashire and Yorkshire clubs, Welsh clubs were, the Midlands clubs were, clubs in the southwest of England were, paying. they were all paying broken time, but in Lancashire they were actually paying wages to players. Mm. And of course, that caused a problem because clubs realised we could get promotion if we get the right players. But equally, we can avoid relegation. Mm. 1894, that that was when the problem started. 93-94, the second season, we had Lee suspended for professionalism. We had Salford suspended for professionalism. And that angered the, the senior clubs who wanted, who, who came out and said, we, we want a professional first division. Mm. And when Salford were found guilty and suspended, their secretary came out and dropped them the biggest bombshell of all. He said he intended to bring charges of professionalism against five other clubs, Swinton, Tilsley, Rochdale Hornets, Broughton Rangers, and Wigan. So you've got got seven of the first division clubs who were either suspended or were being investigated for professionalism. No mention of broken time payments, professionalism in Lancashire, in Yorkshire, promotion and relegation on merit.
0: Sorry? I was just going to say, So, what did the fixture list look like for these clubs back then? Because I don't think there's a modern understanding of, you know, did they was it did they play, did they regularly play teams from the south or not?
1: Yes, they did. They they had a if you look at the the 10 Yorkshire clubs that then became 12 Yorkshire clubs, they played each other home and away, but in, interspersed with those were the were, were the matches with the southern clubs and the Midlands clubs of people from the southwest of England. And and so the the fixture list was was full. And interspersed between sort of friendly games, for want of a better word, were these matches which were championship matches, first division matches, second division matches, third division matches, and so on. And that's that's how it, it, it evolved. I mean, prior to that, and no league fixtures and no league tables. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: So this kind of revelation, how does it impact on our understanding of what rugby league is? I, I think we, we try to paint a picture of it as quite a noble pursuit and a social revolution, but it sounds like it was you know, very much commercial and, and um, I guess if the, if the denizens of, of, of Twickenham were levelling charges of crassness at, um, at, at, the, at these clubs and the Northern clubs, perhaps by, by Victorian definitions, it was fair enough. There was... It was crass
1: commercialism. Well, without any doubt, Mm. Broken Time had got nothing to do with this at all. It had had got to do... purely and simply with one thing, and that was the senior clubs in Yorkshire and then following them at Lancashire wanted to control their own destiny, Mm -hmm. and they were not prepared to obey the rules of professionalism that were being drawn up by the, uh, the authorities down in London. And this, this idea of uh, a noble gesture to look after the financial welfare of their players, Steve, it was nothing more than smoke and mirrors. The senior clubs in Yorkshire were very, very good at smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. They They went into in the financial welfare of their players but at the time they portrayed themselves as looking out for the welfare of the working class player in the north of England who could not afford to play the game unless they got financial support from the clubs and what they were trying to do was to occupy the moral high ground Mm -hmm. and also trying to get the the rest of the, the Lancashire and Yorkshire counties on side because when the split came and the lead up to the split the whole of Yorkshire and the whole of Lancashire. near mm. clubs, and in an attempt to get them back on side, Joseph Platt came out with this. Um, now ingrained in us in our psyche that we we split from the Rugby Union because they refused to sanction broken time payments to players. Mm. Nothing could have been further from the truth.
0: Yeah, but nobody
1: yeah. wants to. Nobody wants to admit that because don't forget, way back in '95, the the whole of the country was against these 21 clubs, which became 22 clubs. And the best way to get them onside side was to find some moral high ground that they could get to. And Joseph Platt hit, hit the nail on the head, didn't he? Mm-hmm. It's because we're looking after our players. It stayed with us for 126 years. Nothing yeah. nothing more than the selfishness and greed of the clubs themselves.
0: Mm. And has anything
1: changed in the last 126 years?
0: No, exactly. I mean, that, that brings us down to the question of that's a great quote. It brings us down to the question of what is rugby league, given that, you know, for the first 12 years, uh, it yeah. looked identical to, to rugby union, or more or less. I know they've made you know, incremental changes up to 907. Well, they got rid of the breakaways, but um, the, you could only define rugby league as being really uh, rugby run by rugby league administrators. It's the only defining factor of rugby league. I know now we've got to play, You could say to play the ball or something like that, but we fiddle with the rules every year, still trying to make more money. Um, and we saw just today the NRL shutting down their digital arm to keep their um, to keep their media partners happy, Channel Nine and, and News. It seems to be the only defining sort of factor of what rugby league is. Is that is that sort of a, um, a, the, the commercial, um, you know, veracity, you know, being voracious about about money, and also that kind of um, um, uh, that attitude of, uh, of of not wanting to toe the line, of being rebellious, of, uh, of being of wanting to um, you know um, call you, call the shots. Um, They they seem to be the things that really define what rugby league is.
1: Absolutely. Nothing could be (laughs) spoken. You know, I mean, and it's very... In 1995, they were insular and inward-looking. They're still the same now. Don't forget, even by 1920, the only people who were allowed to to vote in in the rugby league in England uh, on issues of any matter were those clubs who attended that meeting at the George Hotel on the 29th of August, 1895. And every decision that has been made over the years, and you're absolutely spot on, has been made purely and simply how can we make the game more attractive to our sponsors, our benefactors, our coffers? And I mean, you see it now in Australia, I believe, more so than in England. We get the likes of uh, Peter Volandi saying, I'm listening to the fans. They're not listening to the fans. They're listening to Channel 9. They're listening to Fox Sports, aren't they? You know, mm-hmm. And that's, if you think about it, Rugby Union has changed very little in the last 126 years. If Daily Messenger came back today and watched the game of Rugby League in Sydney or in England, what would he think? He would think it was another universe. The game has changed so dramatically mm-hmm. over the last 126 years. It's not true. And as you say, we keep changing the game year on year. Why? Mm. The fans don't want it. The players don't want it. The referees don't want it. It can only be the broadcasters that want it.
0: Mm. Mm. And and, and the fact that we're kind of destined, because it's in our DNA, to keep getting the shits with each other and to keep subdividing, um, and we had obviously... um, uh, you know, I don't think I'll ever get to 12 books, but I've got a second one coming out or, uh, um, about 1997. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and about... And, and, and the fact that the only reason that that was such a big deal was because someone financed a disgruntled group, um, that we have these disgruntled groups constantly. They're always there. And they're often waiting for a fairy godfather to come along and, and give them a bunch of money. So they can go and do their own thing. We had the World Rugby League a few years ago, um, you know, uh, which you know obstructed rugby leagues getting recognised by GASIF, by the Olympic Committee. Um, and and any any um, I bet any of the viewers can name a, a disgruntled rugby league group now, who if they could have a meeting at the George, or if they could uh, or if they could have a, a media millionaire give them a, a bunch of money, they'd be off straight away start their
1: own oh, competition. You know what I mean? Without a shadow
0: of a doubt. Um,
1: <laughs> and the, the crazy thing is that, like in England, you've got Super League and they're not interested in anyone else other than Super League. So the, the, the first division, the championship as it is now, and we've lost, we've lost sight of the grassroots. Where do our players come from, Steve? They come from those amateur clubs whose mums and dads take their six, 10-year-old kiddies to play the game, who go on and get them to play for a, a bigger club, who get them to attract the attention of a Super League club or a First Division club and hopefully become a professional. All of that seems to have gone out of the window. Someone seems to think that you can... by players. We saw it, didn't we, in the 60s and 70s when the game in England was really down on its surface. We brought in Australian coaches. We brought in Australian players. We changed the way in which we play. It was so successful, we haven't won a Test Series since
0: 1970.
1: Mm. Mm. And you're right. If someone came along tomorrow and said, I've got 10 million quid. I want to set up a rugby league, league. They would all of the senior clubs in the Super League would say, what is in it for me? And they would jump ship without a moment's hesitation. And um, just...
0: How would you sum up, if, if, if you know, if, if if rugby league was not born out of the um, broken time, and pursuit of broken time for players who couldn't otherwise afford to play, in, in, a, in a sentence, how would you sum up what rugby league how Rugby League was born and why it was born. It sounds like it was born out of political rancor in, in, um, in, in Yorkshire and the, the pursuit of open professionalism in Lancashire. Is that how you'd sum it up? Absolutely.
1: Spot on, Steve. It was born out of, a, out of 21, 22 senior clubs wanting to do exactly what they wanted to do and to hell with the rest of the game in, in Lancashire, the rest of the game in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And in Lancashire. The driving force, I'm convinced, was professionalism. Mm-hmm. And in Yorkshire, the driving force was the fact that there were not the clubs were not going to be dictated to by the Union authorities as to which clubs would be promoted and which would be relegated.
0: Mm. And given given your new understanding of the game's birth, how, how does it impact your love of the game today?
1: Well, I have to I have to say. Steve, if I'm being for perfectly honest, I, my love of the game has diminished quite considerably. The game that I grew up watching, when, when, when we, I, was a, I was born in Wigan and I was a big Wigan fan, and Wigan had a great deal of success, but when the Green and Golds turned up, you would guarantee that there would be an almighty crowd, an almighty game and everybody would be happy. Those days have gone, what I see now is a commercial game, which is, I mean, in England and I'm here in Australia, five kicks and, a, and a five char, five drives, five charges and a kick. Mm-hmm. If, I could, if I could bring in one rule, it would be, you cannot score a try unless you carry the ball over the line. Mm-hmm. You have to run with the ball to score a try. How many times do we see people kick into the corners, catch the ball over the line, and fall over? I, 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 I despair as to where this game is going, because we we're pandering to broadcasters and not not looking after the history of the game and the supporters that grew up like you and I. People. I mean, I'm 74, but there are people coming into the game who've been watching the game for perhaps 10, 15 years or well, in the early 30s. what? When are they, what's going to happen when they lose faith in this game of ours?
0: Mm-hmm. Tom, um, before we wind up, uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, um, can, can you tell us a bit about the process of w- when you write your books? Can you tell us about how you allocate your time? Obviously, I see them on Amazon. Are they... Yeah, you know, do you use a self-publishing platform? Um, um, and and then and then also at the end when you tell me that stuff, if you could tell everyone uh, um, where they can they can get Rugby League is Born, which I'm, I think everyone who's watched to this point, who's interested enough in the subject, will probably want to read it.
1: Yeah, my starting point is always something. Well, I suppose if I'm being honest, I want to bring back into the public domain stuff from 100 years ago because in, in England when a player retires we tend to forget about them very quickly mm. and you know there's a lot of history that's been lost and so my starting point has always been to, to try and bring back into the public domain a, a little piece of history like the 1920 test, the Rourke's drift test, the, the, the tours that went on between between the walls and, and so on and so the problem is trying to write books. You're writing for a niche market, and when you write for a niche market, selling it is difficult. Mm-hmm. Trying to get a publisher is difficult, and I find that Amazon and Kindle self-publishing has been—it's been a boon for me, really, because I write a book. We, my wife and I, sit down and we, she proofreads with me, and we we then publish it. It's published within sort of half a day, and people can then. Go on to Amazon or go into any good bookshop and say, I'd like this copy. I'd like a copy of the uh, Rugby League is Born after a long labour. And they can read. They may not agree with what I said, think Steve. They may, not, they may think that my interpretation of what happened in that meeting in 1895 is completely rubbish. But at least they're making them th- sit back and think, mm. oh, that's a new, a new slant on things. So people who are interested in rugby league and rugby league history, go to Amazon, go to your bookshop, buy it. It's by top mother. And I don't make a lot of money, but I do get it back into the public domain, Steve.
0: That's, it's been awesome uh, to speak to you. And um, I, if I can add that uh, I did add um, your book on my store, shop.stevemasko.com just the other day. And um, it doesn't impact uh, a cent that you get, uh, but um, the, the links uh, the links mean that I, I, I might get a good... Uh, I'm just about, grateful... About a, about a cent, about a cent. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I'm just grateful for the fact that we're talking here and you are helping to get rugby league fans in England and in Australia aware of things which they may not be, be aware of.
0: It and is, and of, I think... I think it's fascinating too. I don't know if a lot of fans do. I imagine only a tiny percentage of people do think about it. But to me, the the origins of the sport um, speak to the way I read current events and and to to the way I allocate my time and to why, why, you know, why I would uh, go to the grand final this weekend or why I might buy a book or buy a jersey or whatever. You know, an understanding of a sport's history to me is, is essential to... Uh, what it stands for, and and you know, I think a lot of people, uh, particularly in, in this country in the UK, d- you know, do buy into the 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 myth of, of rugby league's birth and that it was a noble um, social uh, upheaval and a social movement, um, when in fact it was just a breakaway competition and or two breakaway competitions, and it just happened to come along at a time with the development of mass media, and and all that sort of stuff, uh, and and. Uh, the, Deindustrialization. It came along at a time where that meeting was more important than um, it might otherwise have been. Um, you know, we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago where the, I think the the, the Huddersfield referees refused to referee anymore in local junior competition. And at the time when there was no TV, there's no Super League, there's no NRL, there's, there's no games on radio, a little meeting like that is actually seismic. And that's what this was. It was a kind of a, a it was something now we might consider a minor meeting because it, no one was getting paid any money, or if they were, it was under the counter. Um, you know, the 22 clubs involved, and I guess in the whole country at that time, there might have been 400 clubs. But because of all the other things happening in society at the time, it, 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 um, it, it had this cascade effect, and we now look upon it as we would look upon Moses, um, you know, parting the Red yeah. Sea. Just because of all these other things, you know.
1: Just, just think about this. This wonderful meeting, this this um, cataclysm, suggests that the Northern Union was formed a week earlier. Now, at six thirty on that Thursday evening, 21, 22 senior, twenty one rugby club representatives sat down. The first thing they did was formally accept they were setting up a Northern Union. Then they decided to send their letters of resignation into the rugby union. Then they decided, oh, we're going to meet next Tuesday to sort out a fixture list. By half past the seven, they were sitting there and having dinner. It wasn't that big a meeting at all, was it?
0: <laughs>
1: and it? And it's really funny. And the other interesting thing is, you know, they say history is bunk, but history, if we forget history... We'll make the same mistakes again, and how many mistakes has the Rebellion made in 126 years by simply not looking at the history of the game?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's mm-hmm. a crazy system. It's like it's like something out of
0: Monty Python. It is, it is. And again, we saw today with the dismantling of the NRL Digital, which was a hugely profit-making thing and was a bit of a nuclear bunker against the collapse of. Uh, traditional media rights which are which are collapsing uh, because people don't watch uh, traditional media anymore they don't watch the content that way anymore and so the NRL had built itself a bunker uh, against that development seeing it on the horizon and just and just blew up the bunker this morning you know so um, that is a, just another example and I just I, I you know I, I think the game is um, it's in an interminable loop of making these mistakes because because of the way it was born. It was born that way. It was born out of rebellion and rancour and anger and hate and rivalry. That's actually what it, where it comes from. And it's it just, I think, doomed to repeat that forever. That is in the very nature. And to expect rugby league to be any different is to expect communism to open a chain of McDonald's restaurants or expect God to be an atheist. I just, don't, I just think it's it's against the very nature of the sport to expect any more of it. Um, but anyway, I think on, that, on that note, on that note, uh, thank you very much for your time to- talking to you. Greatly appreciate you. it. Thank you.